My name is Levin Abraham, and I'm so grateful that you are here today. And if you're joining us online, we're thinking about you. I'm praying for you specifically that wherever you are, whatever context and environment you're joining us from, that you would feel the presence of God that Christ's presence in you and through you would be so overwhelming. If you're new today, we welcome you to Bent Truth. We've been praying for you, have been asking for God to bring you our, through our doors or through our streams so that he could speak life into you. In fact, would you just thank God for those who are visiting and joining us today? We're grateful for you. Thank you. I heard a story about, uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be hopping in there just in a few minutes here. I heard a story about a guy who would go to small group just every week, and he was regularly committed to going to a group, which is awesome. You need to be in a group. Uh, all, all the people in the group say amen. 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 It's life-changing. So this guy would go to group, and every week he would be overcome with shame and guilt because he blew it that week, and he would pray the same prayer every week. He would say, God, I'm so sorry for the sins I've committed, please come and clean out the cobwebs in my life. Clean out the cobwebs in my heart. So then week two would come out, and then he would do the same thing. God, I blew it again. I'm so sorry. Just clean out the cobwebs in my life. Week three, same thing. God, I blew it again this week. I'm so sorry. Clean out the cobwebs in my life. Well, it came to week four, and as he started this prayer again, God, I'm so sorry. Clean out the cobwebs in my life. One of the other group members said, God, he interrupted the prayer, which is interesting. He said, God, don't clean out the cobwebs. Just take out the spider. I kill the spider. See, every faith system in the world, every religion in the world, is all about cleaning out the cobwebs in your life. It's about behavior management and shame mitigation. How do you try harder and remove guilt? What can you do on your own to try to clean out the cobwebs in your life? But in the Christian message, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not given good advice on how to clean out the cobwebs in our life. We are given good news that the spider has been taken out. Can I get an amen? Amen. That Jesus has triumphed over the grave. He is victorious over sin, over death, over our shame, and over our guilt. He is Lord of all, risen, and gloriously victorious today. Amen. Come on, that can, we can thank God for that. And because he is victorious, he cleanses us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. For these churches in Asia Minor that we've been diving into this letter written by Peter in 1 Peter 2, victory is far from their mind. They are just in survival mode. They're trying to make it from week to week. They think they're on the defense, just trying to make it. Victory is far from their mind. But Peter, in 1 Peter, writes a really radical message to them. He says, no, 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 you're not on the defense. You are chosen by God. You may be exiles, but you are chosen. You have living hope. A living hope so radical that it's to be asked about. You are this in Christ. You are victorious in Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter does not invite them to a defensive, a passive kind of life. He invites them to an active kind of life. So eager to do good, to bless those who persecute them. And in this passage we're going to be in today, Peter puts in the forefront of their mind this incredible victory that Jesus has already won. This incredible victory through the work of Christ that is now available to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Now, here's a little disclaimer. I'm going to do far more teaching than preaching today uh, because we're going to be in a really interesting passage of text. And one of the things when you preach through a book is that you don't get to just skip over the hard passages. And so we're going to be in a, in a passage of Scripture that's, quite honestly, a little difficult to interpret. In fact, Martin Luther said about this passage we're going to be in, he said this, a wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. So that I don't know for a certainty just what Peter means. I would echo that. I don't know either with certainty what Peter might exactly mean. So if the great reformer could come to this with humility, we all need to approach this text with a little humility. Say, God, will you speak to us? Would you bring clarity to this passage? But I think this passage of Scripture is amazing. Because no matter which view you take through this passage, it all points to the glorious victory found in Jesus Christ. So let's jump in to verse 18. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. We looked at this first verse a few weeks ago. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Just pause there for a second. Just give God a thanks in your heart, will you? This is the gospel in one sentence. Christ is our example. He also suffered for us. He's our substitute. Righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Our ultimate complete sacrifice is Jesus. He is the great introducer who brings us, places us in the presence of God. And then Peter continues, he was put to death in the flesh and made alive by the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as the pledge of a good conscience toward God, good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, all subject to him, all subject to Jesus. Amen? What an amazing passage of scripture. We're going to dive into this passage, but I think what's exciting about this passage is that it may give us a clue into what happened between Good Friday and Easter. Maybe, just maybe, what Jesus was up to between his death and resurrection. There are three major views I want to just walk us through. Of course, there are multiple variations in those views, but three major views of how we can possibly biblically approach this passage of Scripture. The first one is called this. It's the descent into hell view. The descent into hell view. Now, every single view that we're going to look at, they all agree that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He physically died. It was not an illusion as some claim to be. He physically died. He didn't just pass out and then was resuscitated. No, he died and was resurrected. And we know that Jesus was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit because Paul was saying it was the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is alive in us. That is mind-boggling, by the way. That the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is inside of you, Christian. But in this verse, it's difficult to tell if the word spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit of Jesus. 
In Greek, words are not capitalized, and here, there is no definite article in front of the spirit or in front of the word flesh. So scholars argue, is this a human spirit of Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit that this particular passage is referring to? In this view that is sent into hell view, it says that, well, the spirit is the human spirit of Jesus. So Jesus died in the flesh, but his human spirit went somewhere. Where did he go? He went to prison. And the word prison here refers to the underworld. You can call it Hades, you can call it Sheol, you can call it hell, whatever it might be. Jesus, after the cross, went to the underworld, went to hell, went to Hades. And what did he do there? He made a proclamation to spirits in prison. And this particular view interprets the word spirits as human beings who had now died and gone to that place. Particularly those who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. So this view says perhaps this is saying that Jesus, his human spirit, went to hell and proclaimed the gospel to those who died without Christ. Perhaps for the purpose of preaching the gospel so they could see him and have a chance to accept him as savior. Some said this is the moment where anyone ever who died before Jesus was able to receive the gospel of Jesus. So his human spirit went to hell and proclaimed the gospel perhaps for their conversion. There's a second view which the first one is probably the least likely among scholars to be held to. The second view, far more popular, is the pre-incarnate Christ view. The pre-incarnate. Pre-incarnate means Christ before his incarnation, before Jesus took on a body. Because I hope you know this, that Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. He has always existed. So this view points to the fact that Christ did something before he was incarnate here on the earth. So this view says the word spirit is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God. So he was put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Holy Spirit, in which or by whom he also went and made proclamation of the spirits in prison, who were in the past disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. This pre-incarnate view of Christ says that the Holy Spirit raised Christ's body to life and it is the same Holy Spirit who was making proclamation when in the days of Noah to those who were being disobedient to the message of Noah in his generation. So this view says that well, the spirits really are the people that lived in Noah's generation. They're in prison, meaning either it was going back into the past to say they lived in a life of ignorance and sin, captive to that life, or the word prison here refers to those who were disobedient to the message of Noah, the message of repentance, are now in Hades or hell. Same thing as the last view. But the emphasis of this particular view is that Jesus, who was raised alive by the Holy Spirit, it was by that same Holy Spirit. Jesus was pleading through Noah. He was preaching through Noah. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was pleading patiently in the days of Noah. Longing, wanting those who heard the message of Noah from the Holy Spirit, from Christ himself, to come to faith and repentance in God. So this view says it was Christ preaching through Noah way back in the day when Jesus spoke through Noah in his generation. Fascinating enough, 1 Peter, actually a few chapters back in 1 Peter 1, verse 11, talked about how every prophet that proclaimed a message from God, actually it was Christ speaking through them. Notice what Peter said. They inquired, these are prophets or messengers, inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
So the pre-incarnate view of Christ is this passage is about Jesus speaking through Noah into his generation. There's a third view, probably the most common among scholars. It's called the triumphal proclamation view, the triumphal proclamation view. This view, like the first view we talked about, also says it was a human spirit that went somewhere. And this spirit went to the same place, to the underworld or Sheol or hell, whatever you want to call it. It went there. But the spirits are not people who died apart from Jesus. The spirits are demons and fallen angels who are in bondage or in chain in the prison in Sheol. These are demonic forces, authorities and principalities, perhaps going as far back as Genesis 6, where you read about these fallen angels back in Genesis, in the days of Noah or before the days of Noah. It's these spirits that Jesus went to make a proclamation. But the proclamation wasn't sharing the gospel in order for them to be saved. This proclamation was proclamation of his victory, vindication, a proclamation that Christ is victorious. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, Peter says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. This passage really gives us a glimpse of a world we don't see. Sometimes we think everything we see is what we see, There's a whole world, a spiritual dynamic to our existence that we don't see. So those who hold to this view have this idea that Christ went and made proclamation of victory in the places where these demonic forces were held and enchained. It was sort of this idea that after the cross there was a party going on in hell. Demons and fallen angels celebrated the fact that they had gotten rid of the Son of God. They thought for sure God's plan had now been thwarted. But just when the party was getting lit, here comes Jesus, claiming victory, proclaiming that he is victorious over sin, death, and the grave, that he is gloriously victorious. I like this view. I like this scene where hell's celebration is interrupted by the presence of King Jesus. Paul actually says it like this in Ephesians 4, verse 8 to 9. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people, but what does, it, but what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. All right, is it clear as mud yet? I'm not going to ask you to take a vote on which you think is right. But here's what I think. You ready? I do think that it was the spirit of Jesus preaching through Noah. Because any single time, any person, whether it's me on a platform or you at your workplace or you in your community, in your neighborhood, where you open your mouth and you begin to proclaim a message for God, it is the spirit of Christ speaking through you. All through the Old Testament, it was the spirit of Jesus prophesying, the spirit of Jesus calling people to repentance. And anytime we open our mouths and talk about the glories of God, it's not us in our own power doing that. It is the spirit of Christ, the power of Jesus preaching through us, just like he did in Noah's day. And I also think 
that Jesus disrupted the party in hell, hell, and he declared himself to be victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and he broke the power of Satan, and he broke the chains of the enemy, he held the captives captive, and he declared victory once and for all. Can I get an amen? amen. Those two things can be both true, and I know that on the night he died, on the afternoon he died, graves were open, tombs were emptied, and dead people came to life because even at the death of Jesus, there was so much power that invaded death and hell. Paul would say it like this in Colossians 2, verse 14 to 15. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that were against us and opposed to us and has taken that away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them when publicly, openly shamed them, disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. It would have been enough for Jesus to triumph over our sin, but he didn't stop there. He triumphed over Satan and his forces. So whichever view you take, all of it points to the fact that Jesus is victorious. Jesus is king. He is Lord. There is no ruler, no dominion, no power that can usurp the authority and power of God. Imagine what this would have meant for the readers of 1 Peter. They are being pushed aside, marginalized. Many of them will be lit as night torches in the garden of Nero for entertainment. They're wondering, have we lost? Is it worth it? Is it even worth following this Jesus at the sake of our life? And Peter is saying, it is worth it. Jesus suffered, he died, but his story didn't end with his death. He rose from the grave and he is victorious. He's saying to his readers, hang in there, endure with this Jesus who suffered for you because if you endure with him, you will be victorious with him. The Christians in first century are wondering, does Nero have the last word? Does evil have the last say? And Peter is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus has the last word. He has the last day because he is already victorious. You may read the headlines on the news channel, see the brokenness around us, and you might wonder, what is happening in the world? Does evil prevail? Does evil win? And the answer is, no, no, no. We read the book. Jesus is victorious. He is already king. He has the last word. Amen. He does. Paul would say it like this to Timothy in 2 Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. Let's endure, church. Let's die with him so we can live in victory every day with Christ. Peter intentionally brings up the illustration of Noah, the example of Noah. But because the parallels between Noah's story, it's so true of this early church, and it's true for us today. Noah and his family were a minority because they believed in God. They refused the pressure of culture, the wickedness of culture. They placed their faith in what God said and lived for God. They were a minority because they believed in God. And they believed that a judgment was coming where the world would be judged. And so they preached a message of repentance. They were a minority preaching a message no one wanted to hear. And in response to that, they were ridiculed, marginalized, and humiliated. 
And Peter says, in the days of Noah, God patiently waited. All through the 120 years while the ark was being built, God was patiently waiting. And I believe he's doing the same. Peter actually tells us in 2 Peter that he's not slow in keeping his promise. No, he's just being patient. Every day, waiting for one more life, one more family, one more child, one more adult to come to faith in Christ. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance in him. He is being patient. It was only eight, Noah and his family, that were saved through the flood. Because narrow is the way that leads to life. It was open for anybody. It was invited for the whole world, but narrow was the way because only a few chose to go through it. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. He is the door of the ark. And that door, by God's grace, is still open for us today. But ultimately, Peter wants these listeners in ancient Asia Monday to know that though Noah was a minority, though his message wasn't heard, they ultimately were victorious because God gave them ultimate salvation. He saved them. He rescued them. That's also true of us today. As Peter thinks about the story of Noah, he thinks about how Noah and his family were saved through water. They were not just saved from the waters, the flood waters. They were saved through the flood waters. The same waters that brought judgment to the world was the same water that saved Noah's family. Because the same water that covered the earth and destroyed the world lifted the ark and brought Noah and his family to safety. So Peter goes on in verse 20 to say this. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And here's the clarity that we need. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah and his family saved through water. We are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that it's not just the mere act of baptism that saves us, but what baptism represents. And just for clarity, he's sure to say not just simply the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Peter is saying just as the waters in Noah's day lifted the ark, saving them, the waters of baptism represent something so incredible. It represents the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And those who by faith have placed their life in this faith, in this reality, this truth of the resurrection, those who have declared, Jesus, you died, you rose from the grave, and you are alive forevermore, those people have a clean conscience before God, and they are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about what baptism represents, new life, resurrection life in Christ Jesus. In the first century, Conversion, baptism, and church membership were not three separate things that were one. As soon as you place your faith in Christ, you were immediately baptized publicly, and you immediately were joined to a local church to do life and community with them. It was one thing. To be baptized was to be converted. To be baptized was to not be a part of the local church. They were used interchangeably because baptism talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and anyone who was baptized was already saved. Here is what Peter is saying. Just as the waters of Noah's day brought them to salvation and safety, what the waters of baptism mean and represent for us, it saves us. 
Our faith in Christ Jesus that is celebrated, publicly celebrated in water baptism. And can I just tell you, this year alone, 72 people here at Bentry have been water baptized, celebrating their new life in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Praise God for that. Maybe you're here today and you're following Jesus, but you have yet to be baptized, or God is stirring in your heart a deep desire to follow him and then publicly celebrate this new life. We invite you to the waters of celebration through baptism because it is your greatest sermon of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how you are made new in Christ, clean conscious, not simply the outward washing of our body, but the inward washing of the soul. Now, Peter has one more section to tell us. So far, he has talked to us about Jesus, how he suffered and was victorious. He has talked to us about Noah. And in his ridicule, in his humiliation, he eventually was victorious through God. How God saved and vindicated Noah. Now, he moves to you and to me. He looks at us, and he has something to say to us on the basis of what he's just talked about for Christ and his suffering and Noah and his suffering. He looks at you and I, and here's what Peter says in chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For God's will. Peter has just beautifully explained the victory of Jesus through his death and resurrection, how he has triumphed over demonic forces and powers. And now he invites us to every single day of our life, let Christ's victory be realized in our own life through the decisions we make. Peter was saying here, there are moments when your human desires are contrary to God's will. They may be in opposition at times. Now, I believe that when the Holy Spirit lives in you, that he begins to change your desires. He creates in you a new want, a new longing. He transforms your affection and deep desires. You want to please God. You want to love him. You want to live for him. He changes the very desires of our heart. But there are still going to be moments where our human desires could be in contradiction to God's will. Look, I want to eat healthy. I want to eat right and work out. But you put a box of Oreos in front of me. It's tough. I may eat them all and black out and then blame my kids for eating them. <laughs> there are moments we know the right thing to do, but we give in to our flesh. Peter is saying you will have moments when you know God's will. You recognize his plan, his will for your life, but there are desires that wage war. And he says in those moments, arm yourself with the understanding of Jesus. Arm yourself, equip your mind, understanding Jesus, meaning Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are. And his obedience to the Father's will brought great pain and agony. It brought consequence and suffering. Think about Gethsemane where everything in Jesus' human flesh wanted to escape this cup prepared for him. So he prays to the Father, God, if there's any way at all, Remove this cup from me, but here's the obedience, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' human desire for safety to escape suffering was there, but his desire for obedience and the Father's will was stronger. 
And Peter was saying, you and I will have moments where there is a desire in our heart that is in contradiction or in opposition to God's will. But in those moments, think of Jesus and how he endured pain and suffering for the cost of following the Father's will. And it was worth it. It was so worth it. Peter is saying, yield your life to the will of the Father. And then he says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourself also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. What does that mean? Are we forever done with sin? No, I think this is saying when you make decisions, knowing their consequences, when you make choices that honor God and that where your human desires yield to God's will, knowing that it may come with a price and still you say yes to God's will, you say yes to his conviction. Peter was saying, this is proof that sin no longer holds you in bondage. This is proof that Christ is victorious and the Christ who is victorious in you is now victorious through you. That Christ's victory now impacts your conduct, your decisions. See, at the cross, sin lost its grip on you. But in your day-to-day decisions, you lose your grip on sin. At the cross, sin was done away with, the consequences of sin. But every single day when we make choices that honor God and our human desires yield to God's desires, we are proving we're done with sin. We've lost every grip of sin because we're saying, Jesus, you are far more precious. You are far more pleasing to me than sin. Peter goes on in verse 3 and he says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles chose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. You're following Jesus. You're following his standards when it comes with persecution and slander, and it's now popular. They will give, meaning those who ridicule, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Peter is speaking about those in first century who heard the gospel who accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And they chose to live in a way that honored God. They chose to make moral decisions and live a kind of life that was distinct and separate from the norm, from what culture said was appropriate. And because of that, they were ridiculed. They were ostracized. And eventually, they died. And the world saw that and said, look, they died just like everybody else. But Peter's saying, no, 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 they might have died according to human standards, but according to God's standard, they are more now alive than ever before. They're alive in the spirit. They're experiencing real freedom and true life. It reminds me of what D.L. Moody said. Before he died, he said, one day you'll hear in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. He said, don't you believe a word of it. Because I will be more alive that day than I am today. This is a promise for everyone who is in Christ. The death is not the end. It's the beginning. It's not an abyss that we are stuck in. No, it's an open door into the very presence of God. So Peter says, those who died in the flesh according to human standards, they are alive in the spirit forever. What is born of flesh may die, but what is born of the spirit never dies. It lives forevermore. 
The same token, Peter says, those who ridicule for this reason, said right here, they will give an account, meaning those who stood in opposition to Christ's followers, will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. This is a hard statement to read and to believe. It is saying that there is a universal judgment coming for living and the dead, not just for Christ followers, but for those who refuse this message as well. It's the universal purview of God's judgment. And this statement is radical today, just as it was in first century, in a pluralistic way. Today, in a relativism-driven religion. If your truth works, good for you, but I got my own truth. If you believe Jesus is great for you, but I'm going to believe my own way and follow my own God. Peter is saying, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not, there is a judgment coming for living and the dead. For Christ's followers, we have already been judged and declared righteous. We've already transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But there is a day of judgment coming. And this ought not fill us with a sense of, oh, I can't wait for the world to see this. It ought to fill us with anguish, pain, with sorrow, knowing that on that day, many will see Jesus as a judge and not a savior because they refused his message. It ought to bring tears to our eyes. And that's why Peter said in, earlier in chapter 2, for many, Christ is a cornerstone. For those who believe, he's a cornerstone. But for those who reject it, he is a stumbling block. They will tip over him, trip over him. For Christ's followers, this is the closest to hell we'll ever get. But for those who have not yet believed, this is the closest to heaven they'll ever get. For Christ's followers, it's the closest to hell we'll ever get. But for those who are outside of Christ, this is the closest to heaven they'll ever get. And if you're apart from Jesus today, I want to plead with you in the spirit of Christ. The door of hope is still open. The door of grace, the door of the ark is still available and Christ is pleading with you. Turn your heart by faith to Jesus Christ and you will see him as a beautiful savior, as a father who loves you, accepts you, embraces you into his family. There are two extremes that people can find themselves in. One is legalism, and the other one is license or licentiousness. Two extremes, legalism and license. Legalism forbids what God allows, and license allows what God forbids. Legalism says for you to be saved, you got to perform and do and earn your standing with God. So your position in Christ is achieved by your performance. So do more, try harder. Well, that's not the gospel. Licentiousness or license says, because you're already loved, accepted, and forgiven, do whatever you want to do. There are no rules. There are no absolutes. Live whatever lifestyles. Make whatever moral decisions or immoral decisions you want. You're already accepted. You have full freedom and license. And in fact, first century, they had this issue as well. Well, we've been given grace, so let's sin more. Both of those things are false. Legalism is false. It's not the gospel. Licentiousness, license is also false. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is not somewhere in the middle. The gospel is not a balance between the two or give and take and try to find a balance. No, no, no. The gospel is a whole new way of life. It is called grace. It's a whole new sphere of living. It is a whole new plane of life. 
And the Bible says grace has two definitions in the New Testament. One definition of grace is that we are forgiven. We are freely accepted in Christ. His work on the cross, as soon as we turn our heart to Christ, he applies it to us. We are declared righteous. He takes on our sin. We don't achieve our standing with God. We receive it by grace that is liberating and that destroys legalism. Your position in Christ is because of him and him alone. You are forgiven, loved, and accepted in the beloved. That is grace. The second definition of grace is divine enablement, spiritual empowerment, where grace enables you to live a life that you naturally cannot live on your own, where grace empowers you to make decisions that you don't want to on your own, to live a kind of life that is supernatural because the Christ in you is living through you. And this definition of grace says the same grace that saved you It's the same grace that changes you. The same grace that transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light now transforms you to be light in the world. We are saved by grace and we're transformed by grace. And the grace we experience in our soul, the washing of the soul now transforms us. It changes our actions. It changes our conduct. The grace that saves is also the grace that changes us and that erodes and destroys licentiousness and our free license to sin. Because Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians, as we reflect on him with unveiled faces, we are being transformed. We are being changed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. What that means is as our reflection of him in worship through his word, the goal of worship is transformation. It's change in our heart. It is Christ in us, living victoriously through us in the decisions we make, in the responses we give. And when Christ lives through us by the power of his enabling grace, racism and prejudice is done with. We choose and honor God in the daily life decisions we make. We will choose God's view of sexuality. We will choose God's design for marriage. We will treat others as we want to be treated. We will be kind even in the midst of rush hour on 75 and road rage is is stifled and grace is living through us. When we run out of patience with our kids, grace enables us to be loving and kind. It produces long suffering. Grace transforms us. And the Christ who is one with us, inside of us, now is beautifully visible to the world because the grace that saves is the grace that transforms. If you've been saved by grace, it ought to naturally live and lead you into a transformed life. Martin Luther said it like this. Law says, do this and you will live. That's legalism. Do this and you will live. But the gospel says, it is done, so now live. Live free, live victorious, live loving, live pure, live faithful, live generous, live considerate, live compassionate, because it is done. My prayer for our church community this week is that just as we are thankful for the grace that saved us, we will firmly pray that the grace that saved us now will become the supernatural enabling power that changes us. It changes us in the boardroom. It changes us in the hospital room. It changes us in your community group. It changes you in the neighborhood. It changes you in your kitchen. It changes and transforms every bit of our life. This is victory. 
Christ died, he rose, he triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. He is victorious. And every day, we live victoriously through him. We're not just on the way to victory. We are living in victory because of Christ in us. Do you bow your heads with me today? There's some of you today who feel distant from God. And today you hear the Holy Spirit pleading with you. You hear the Spirit of Christ speaking to you, saying, would you yield your life? Would you hand over the keys to your heart? Would you place your faith in the risen Jesus? In this moment, I'm asking you, step into this. Don't ignore that prompting. Don't excuse it away. Don't wait any longer. Right now is the moment where they're in this room, online. You can say, God, I need you. Just ask him to rescue you. It's a simple prayer. Jesus, rescue me. I'll place my faith in you. You died. You are alive. I need you. Help me, Jesus. Forgive me. Transform me. He is faithful to the prayer of every repentant sinner. For those who are in Christ, would you pray right now, where does grace need to enable you? Where does grace need to strengthen you? Where does grace need to supernaturally empower you to live different? Is there a hindrance of the Christ in you not being visible through you? So Father, we yield our lives to you. Have your way every day. Don't just be victorious in us, be victorious through us. Let us spend the remainder of our lives not living according to our human desire, but according to your will. But we need your grace to do so. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Spirit of Christ, live through us. Thank you that you are victorious and we join you in your victory. Cause us to be light in the world. For those who are yielding their heart to Jesus for the first time, make this the miraculous moment where they join you in the victory of a risen heart, done with sin, alive to Christ, clothed in your righteousness to live for you once and for all. We pray these things in the matchless, victorious name of Jesus. And the church said, amen, amen. Come on, can we give Jesus a thanks offering today? Thank you so much for joining us online. Matt's going to give you some next steps, but will you email us? Would you connect with us if God is stirring in your heart to take a next step, a spiritual decision? We want to hear from you. We want to see you. We want to meet you as well. For those in the room, before you leave, if God is stirring something in your heart, we've got a prayer room that's available for you. We've got leaders and ministers ready to pray with you. If there's something just heavy on your heart, this has been a crazy week for you, I don't know, whatever it might be, we would love to pray with you. Maybe there are some of you in this room who said, this is the day that I'm placing my faith in Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. I want to join this body of believers. We ask you to make your next step today. If you're new, we would love to meet you in the Welcome Center. We would love to hear your story and hear of the great things God's up to and any questions you may have. We would love to be able to answer those for you as well. Well, I love you, church body. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless you. You're dismissed.